0: The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Man, it's so good to see you guys. Um, If you are new around here. My name's Brian, and I have the privilege of uh, being the lead pastor, teaching pastor here at Steadfast Church. Um, man, you know, I was just thinking sometimes it's great to like have our drums set up and turn the amps to 11 and rock out with electric guitars and stuff, and that's all. It's, but then it's also wonderful sometimes just to strip it all back and have one instrument and one voice and then listen to all the voices of all of you praising God together. It's so powerful, so meaningful, isn't it? So Matt, thank you for that, for leading us this morning. Um, If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 110. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are black hardback ones there in the pew in front of you, and that's a gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those. Really? You can steal from the church? That's fine. Um, (laughs) uh, If you are using a a pew Bible, it's page 476. Page 476. Um, We are... In the last sermon in our series, Broken and Beloved, which has been a, a sort of an examination of the life of King David, it's taken us primarily through uh, the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, although we've dipped into Psalms and we're, we're kind of dipping back into it again today. And there's a reason for that. Um, David wrote at least half of the book of Psalms, like at least 73 of the 150 Psalms recorded Uh, we know for certain are his, and then there are others that are debatable, but could be his as well. So he is a prolific psalm writer. This psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 110, is the most frequently quoted passage of the psalms in the entire New Testament. So you'll see references to Psalm 110 all over the New New Testament. Um, Not only is it the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. So, so this passage or, or references to Psalm 110 show up in the New Testament over and over and over and over and over again. Martin Luther called this psalm the crown of all the Psalms. And that means that according to Jesus, who also quotes Psalm 110, according to Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament, this must have been David's greatest work. It's not Psalm 23, as good as it is, right? It's not Psalm 51. Um, It is Psalm 110, and so what I'd like to do this morning in the time we have together is to dig into this psalm and understand David's sort of pinnacle work and understand why it's so important. Why is it, why should it be so important to us as, you know, Christians in the year 2023? Why did God preserve this psalm for us. So that's what I want to look at. Um, I'm going to read the entire thing. It's only seven verses, um, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll dive in here. So you can follow along as I read Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That's a wild one, isn't it? (laughs) All right, so here at Steadfast, after we read the text, I say, this is the word of the Lord, or this is God's word, and then you say, thanks be to God. So this is God's word. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be with my church family again, thankful for the rest of uh, a vacation, Um, and, and yet it's so good to be back with these beautiful people that I love so much. Thank you for allowing us to open your word. And God, I pray that you would speak through me to your people, that you would help us to see the beauty, the majesty, the glory of Jesus in this passage, that we would love you more when we walk out of these doors um, than we did when we walked in. And so I need your help. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would use me, that you would um, enable me to uh, rightly divide this word so that your people will be um, blessed by it. And if there's anyone in the room who does not know Christ as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. Do what only you can do in our souls, by your spirit, through your word. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Um, I just thought of this before I get going. So two weeks ago, I was in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, preaching at an Acts 29 church there for my friend James Walden, who's on sabbatical. And um, one of the women who was leading worship there uh, grew up here in town. So we were talking and um, turns out her parents went to Bent Creek back in the 80s. (laughs) So... (laughs) It's just so funny to like see the impact and the influence of Bent Creek. Um, uh, you know, it's only three hours away, right? But it's like still to see um, people who've been impacted by this congregation over its 122 years um, in the places that I go. Anyway, um, a few weeks ago, Pastor Jimmy walked us through 2 Samuel chapter 7. Some of you might remember that, and we saw what's called the Davidic covenant, right, where God establishes the throne of David forever. Well, this psalm, Psalm 110, is looking to the future, okay? So David is, it's as if he's overhearing a conversation between uh, the Godhead. And so you see here in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, right? Lord, in all caps, you see that sort of all caps there in, in verse 1, um, that is God's personal intimate covenant name. We refer to it in English as Yahweh, right? That, so this is God's personal name speaking and he says to my lord i want you to sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool that being a sign of honor and power and equality um and he makes three promises here i, I want you to i forgot to give you my point <laughs> if you're a note taker you can write this down So, what happens when i take a couple weeks off i forget how to preach uh, <laughs> A sovereign king, a sovereign king. That's what I want you to see in these first three verses is the the sovereign king. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then Yahweh makes three promises to this Lord, to this king. First, he says, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool, okay? Which means you're going to overpower and subdue all of your foes. I have a friend who um, traveled to Egypt and he saw King Tut's tomb. And in King Tut's tomb is a footstool. And on that footstool are inscribed the names of all of Egypt's enemies at that time. So this is the idea, right? Your enemies are your footstool. You'll prop your feet up on your enemies because you have subdued and overpowered them all. Secondly, he says, um, uh, verse 2, the Lord sends forth from from Zion. So from Jerusalem is where the authority will, will come. Your mighty scepter authority from Jerusalem, and you will rule in the midst of your enemies, meaning he will have sovereign power over everything and everyone everywhere. And then thirdly, he says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In other words, um, those who are in joyful submission to this sovereign king will gladly give themselves over to his purposes And then this sovereign king will go forth in royal vestments and ruling and reigning without ever growing weary. Well, that begs the question, who could this be? Who could this sovereign king be of whom David is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Keep your finger here in Psalm 110, and I want you to flip, if you can, uh, to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, Um, let me give you some context. The people of God are under Roman oppression, okay? They have been waiting for the Messiah, this promised figure for over 400 years. And the anticipation is growing and they're waiting and they're thinking this Messiah is going to come and he is going to liberate us from the oppression of Rome. He's gonna be a political hero who will overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom from Jerusalem and we will rule the world. That's what they wanted. That's what they thought. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and they don't really buy that Jesus could be the Messiah, but there's this sort of um, rumor going around that he could be the promised one. He could be the anointed one. And so the religious leaders, they don't believe this at all, right? And so they keep cornering Jesus, and they keep asking him questions, peppering him with questions to try to trap him so that they can prove to everyone else he's not the Messiah. And so in, in Matthew chapter 22, they've been doing this. They're peppering him with questions. But then Jesus, he answers their questions brilliantly, by the way. And then he turns the tables on them. He flips the script. And he says, all right, let me ask you a question. And he starts to quote Psalm 10. Psalm 110. So look here in verses 41 and following. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, which is always a dangerous thing when Jesus asks you a question. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, of course. Everybody knows that, Jesus. And then look what he says. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, or words, in other words, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did they dare ask him any more questions. <laughs> he got us. He stumped us. We don't know the answer. Okay, so, so what, is, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus knows um, that word in all caps, Lord, that's Yahweh, right? But the other word that is translated in our Bibles as Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai. And in the Old Testament, the word Adonai is specifically reserved for deity, So Yahweh says to God, God is speaking to God and saying, I want you to sit at my right hand. I'm going to give you authority and power. You're going to share in my throne. You're going to have authority. You're going to have power. So, So Jesus is going, okay, how can the Messiah be both David's son and his Lord? See, I have two sons. They're sitting right here. I have never in all of their lives been tempted to call them Lord. (laughs) If David was prophesying purely about one of his sons who would be king, he would call him my son. He wouldn't call him my Lord because David is the supreme king at this time, you see? And so for David to call him my Lord means he must be more than just a human, more than just one of his sons. Furthermore, to whom would God say, sit at my right hand, a position of equality, share in my throne, share in my authority, share in my power, and the religious leaders are completely stumped, and they're amazed, and they're a little frightened. The only answer is that the Messiah must be both human and divine, both a son of David via lineage and a son of God eternally. In other words, Jesus is trying to say to these people, I am David's Lord. I am the one. I am the sovereign king who has come not just to liberate the people from Rome, but to liberate you from your real enemies of sin and death. In other words, if you really understand who the Messiah is, you will receive him on his terms, not on your terms. See, they thought he, they would have a human political leader who would overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus says, I've come to do far, far more than that. I'm not here on your agenda, I'm here on mine. My agenda is to proclaim the gospel and to establish the kingdom of God. Now, how do we, how, how do we think about this in 2023? It seems to me, especially in our, in our area, that everybody kind of likes Jesus, People don't follow Jesus, but they like him. Um, they like his teaching, some of it. They like the like turn, your other, turn the other cheek thing and love your enemies thing. They don't love the I'm the, own the way, the truth, and the life thing so much. But we like, and, and we want to like sort of pick and choose the teachings of Jesus that we like. We disregard other things that we think are kind of silly, and, and, and so we want Jesus on our own terms. Why? Because we want to be the sole authority of our own lives. I'm the king, I'm the sovereign, I'm the authority, and so I, I receive Jesus on my terms because I want to be my own authority. But Jesus doesn't fit into your agendas. Jesus refuses to fit into your agendas. We must surrender to his agenda, to his authority. If he is the sovereign king, promised from the time of David, even, beyond, even before that, right? Then we must come to him and submit to his authority, surrender ourselves to his power, his kingship. We don't just look at him like some other teacher. You know, it's like all of us have friends who like, and some of us in the room might do this. Like we borrow from, from this philosophy, from this thinking, from this, right? And we kind of build our own. I, I might've told you before when I was in college, I came across this website called the Belief-O-Matic I think it's still active, and you can type in what you believe, and then it suggests religions you should try that conform to your beliefs. It's this most asinine thing I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) Assuming I'm right, I am perfectly right, and so let me find something that conforms to me, rather than me saying, what is true, and let me conform my life to what's true. So Jesus is the sovereign king we see here in the first part of David's psalm. Now go back to Psalm 110. You guys with me? Okay. Let me get a sip of water here. The next thing I want you to see is an eternal priest, an eternal priest. We see this in verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's important. You are a priest forever forever. After the order of Melchizedek, now let me just remind you that Israel's priesthood began with Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. So, if you go all the way back into the Bible, you'll see Moses, who was um, called by God to lead the people out of slavery, and then Aaron, his brother, was sort of his mouthpiece, but also became the priest and through his descendants, through Aaron's descendants, the tribe of Levi, Aaron's descendants and the tribe of Levi became the priesthood. When the kings were established, which happened at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we didn't really look at that so much, but, you know, Saul became the first king because the people were like, we want a king. And God's like, I'm your king. You don't need a king. And they're like, yeah, 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 we want a king. And that's what happened. It's like a little summary of it. Um, There was a separation that began between kings and priests, and no one could hold both offices, Okay. The kings and the priests did separate things. In fact, if you remember, Saul tried to offer sacrifices because he was waiting on the priest who didn't show up and he lost the throne over it. Not only were they separate offices, but they almost had opposite functions, okay? For the people of God. For example, kings represented God to the people, okay? Um, They enforced the laws of God, uh, they made judgments. Uh, they enforced those judgments. They were known for strength and judgment and power. that 's what kings did. Priests, on the other hand, represented the people to God. They made atonement for sin. They were known for sympathy and for service. OK? But David here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking of one who is both a king and a priest. And to the, to the, if you were in the room when this psalm had first been read, you would have been shocked. Okay, I get the sovereign king part, but wait, a priest too? That doesn't make any sense. How can he be a king and a priest? And he references here, you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a strange figure who only appears uh, in Genesis chapter 14 and then is referenced in the book of Hebrews. We don't know much about him, but he appears to Abraham uh, after a battle when he goes to get Lot in Genesis chapter 14, Uh, and here's what his name means. Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. The text in Genesis uh, and in Hebrews tells us that he was the king of Jerusalem, but also the king of Salem, which Salem means peace. So he's the king of peace. That's his function. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, but the text also tells us he is a priest of God most high. And he is such a powerful, such a compelling figure that Abraham, who if you remember back in the story of Genesis, Abraham has all the wealth and all the power, right? Like God is blessing him like crazy. And um, Abraham actually tithes or gives gives a tenth portion of all of his produce, of all of his wealth to Melchizedek. He offers his tithe to Melchizedek in honor. Now, Um, David is saying this forthcoming Messiah is going to be like Melchizedek, both as a king and as a priest, but eternally. Who could this be? Who could this be? Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, what we find is that the book of Hebrews is almost entirely connected to Psalm 110. And there are references scattered throughout the entire book of Hebrews um, that point us back to Psalm 110. I'll point out just a couple of them to you. You didn't know you came for Bible study today, did you? Um, flip, flip to Hebrews with me. Um, Hebrews chapters six and seven. And uh, if, you, if you don't know where that is, it's okay. You, there's a table of contents, but you can just listen as I read a few of these verses. Um, most of you might know this one, Hebrews six nineteen. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. But well, chapter 7 is where I want to turn our attention. If we start in verse 14, I'm going to read a few verses here. Um, hopefully it'll make sense after I read it. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 7, here's what what the author of Hebrews says. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The tribe of Judah is the kingly tribe. It's evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah, the kingly tribe, and in connection with that, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So here's our reference back to Psalm 110. Who has become a priest... Not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent or lineage, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and is useless. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Let me stop you really quick. This is what he's saying. God made Jesus a priest. He could skip the lineage of the tribe of Levi because he was from the tribe of Judah. But because of an indestructible life, a perfect sinless life, God says he's also a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever, eternally. And his oath, his promise to Jesus outstrips the lineage. Does that make sense? Okay, we'll keep going. A couple more verses. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing an office, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And the people said, amen. Amen. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Whew. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, for first for his own sins and then for the people since he himself since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Here's what we find out. Jesus is not just a better priest, he's the better sacrifice. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later, than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Wow. Wow. Okay, Jesus is not only a perfect high priest because he fulfills the, the promise of Psalm 110, he's also a perfect high priest because he's holy and innocent and without need to cleanse himself of sin first. But he's also the perfect sacrifice, offering up himself for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He offered himself once for all on the cross, And then if you keep reading in Hebrews, which we don't really have time for, um, in chapter 10, he says, Jesus made this once for all sacrifice. And you know what he did? He sat down. See, in the, in the temple, there were no chairs because the work of sacrifice was never done. Because you would atone for sin. And then guess what? Somebody would sin again. We've got to do another sacrifice. And that just kept on going into per- perpetuity. But when Jesus offered that sacrifice once for all time, he sat down down because the work was finished and then it says and he's awaiting until the father makes his enemies a footstool for him back to psalm 110 and my favorite line in in hebrews chapter 10 uh, is this one uh, as soon as i find it (laughs) oh where'd it go um here we go it's coming guys I promise it's coming. Verse 14, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's what that means. When you surrender yourself to Christ, when you with empty hands receive the finished work of what Jesus has done for you in his life, perfect sinless life, sacrificial death, taking all your sin and shame on himself and his glorious resurrection from the dead, when you receive with empty hands the finished work of Jesus, you are perfected positionally Colossians says that you are you are um, pure and blameless and above reproach before him God sees you through the lens of Jesus and he sees perfection and he smiles but you're also progressively being sanctified you are not literally made perfect you're seen as perfect and then you are becoming you are being perfected you are being Jesus is forming and shaping you by the Holy Spirit into his image So positionally in Christ, you are called perfect, and then you are being perfected. And that's the beautiful, most beautiful news I know. Not only that, the text here tells us that Jesus, our high priest, is interceding for you and me right now. That's wild. That is wild that Jesus is praying to the Father for you. He's taking all of your burdens and all of your shame and all of the junk that you won't say to anyone else, but Jesus knows it, and he pleads with the Father on your behalf. I wish you could understand how vital and important that is. And here's what we think. We know we have atonement. We know we're forgiven. We just don't think we're liked very much, some of us. But Jesus likes you so much that he's continually praying for you. And he's not praying like, Lord, help him get his act together. Like, that's not the prayers that he's praying. And though you and I fail, though we continue to sin in innumerable ways, right? We know sins we commit, and then we don't know a whole lot of sins we also commit. Because we're just so ignorant of our own sin. We don't know how wicked we really are sometimes. But um, Charles Spurgeon, I was reading something uh, in reference to Psalm 110, and, uh, uh, and he said this. Sin cannot tie the tongue of our interceding friend. Oh, what a comfort is here. You have sinned, believer. You have grieved his Holy Spirit, but you have not stopped that potent tongue which pleads for you. Golly, that's good news. Because I don't know about you, but I sin a lot. And I need not only a mediator, I need an intercessor. I need Jesus to plead for, <laughs> for me. Is this making sense? Yes. You see why this psalm is so important? The picture it paints of Christ for us? My goodness. All right, last one. This is the hardest to swallow for some of us. And I'll try to make this short because I only got like, I don't know, 12 minutes left. Back to Psalm 110, verses five through seven. The text says that the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Yeah, he said that. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I want you to see in this passage, a conquering warrior. David's prophetic Psalm not only envisions this sovereign king and eternal priest, but a conquering warrior on a day of final judgment and victory. He says that he's at the right hand of God, which we've already talked about is equality, right? They're sharing rule and reign. He's shattering kings and chiefs. This is the rulers of the nations, okay? He is executing judgment on the entire earth. And when his victory is complete and the bodies are piled up, it says he drinks from the brook, he refreshes himself, and he lifts his head. Now, lifting your head is a sign of victory. It's a sign of completion, And so this this conquering warrior is now going to enjoy his uncontested rule and reign over everything. Now, who could this be? Many people at the time of Jesus expected the Messiah to be a powerful military leader, right? A new David who would slay the giant. They thought that was Rome. Who would defeat their enemies. Who would deliver God's people and rule and reign from Jerusalem with righteous judgment. And Jesus didn't quite fit their expectations. Because he didn't come as a military leader. He didn't come in power. He came in humility. He didn't come to save them from Rome. He came to save them from sin. He didn't come to restore the kingdom of David. He came to establish the kingdom of God. And then he was crucified. And boy, they didn't see that coming at all even though Psalm 22 and Psalm 53 were already in their book. They didn't understand that the Messiah would have to die. And so when Jesus is crucified, they're like, well, clearly he can't be the one because he died, and our Messiah don't die. I just just wish I could have been there on that third day when they're like, wait, didn't you die? And now you, (laughs) didn't we put you in a tomb? So if we fast forward even beyond the book of Hebrews, we go to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, which is, you know, God's word, but it is strange when you read it the first time, you're like, what in the world am I reading? It's like Ezekiel. You're like, when I read, when I read Ezekiel for the first time, I was like, I get how people think UFOs are in the Bible. I really do. <laughs> Revelation can be hard to understand, but what we see is a vision of Jesus as a conquering warrior. And I want to read you one passage in particular um, that might trouble some of you, but it's in there. And that is Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Listen, Listen to how John, the author of the book of Revelation, describes this vision. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, capital letters there, And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's where we get that hymn. Crown him with royal diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's the blood of his enemies. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, a tattoo as it were, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow. Wow. The crucified and risen lamb returns to defeat his enemies. Now, some people struggle with Jesus's wrath and judgment. And, and I, I think I understand that, but with all due respect, I would say it might be because you don't understand the heinousness and offensiveness of sin against him. You mean the God I don't respect and listen to is going to judge me? He is a God of mercy and love for sure. That's why he came. Right? When he saw the sin on the world, in the world, he could have just been like, all right, never mind. But he sent Christ into the world to save sinners. That's you and me. Like he came because of love and mercy and and and, and to display his mercy to the undeserving. That's every single one of us. But he is also a God of true justice. And so you, you and I have a choice. We can fly to him as our refuge and our savior, or we can face his terrifying judgment. And I want you to see why this is good news. If you have been a victim of anything, if you have been a victim of abuse, of neglect, of uh, crimes, okay, you love justice. And you will love God's justice because no one gets away with anything ultimately. Any wrong that's been committed against you and and that perpetrator is still out there unpunished, he will be brought to justice one day. You can count on it. Every sin will be paid for. Either by Jesus on the cross or by that perpetrator in the judgment of God in hell. But it it will be paid for. And so, for those of us who take refuge in Jesus, his final victory means the consummation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And this is beautiful, y'all. Like, this is why I I don't have time to get there, but if you will read uh, Revelation 21 and 22, you will see this beautiful picture of what God is going to do the new heaven and the new earth. He's coming to remake it all. Revelation is less about us flying up to some eternal cloud on the sky to play a harp for eternity, which doesn't really sound like heaven if I'm honest. But it's God coming down and remaking this physical creation, a world without any evil or any effects of the fall. Can you even imagine that? And not only that, but the very presence of God is there. The dwelling place of God will be with man, which means complete and total soul satisfaction in him forever. And the Bible says we will see his face, which means you will look into the eyes of Christ and you will find such affection and such love that you will laugh at everything that has tormented you on this earth, if it even comes to your mind. And there will be no more death, and no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more pain, and no more politics. And the same hands that were pierced for you, and you, and you, and you, are going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Can you even fathom such a moment? So why is this psalm important? Primarily because it gives us a vivid picture of Jesus, our Messiah, who was and is and is to come. And when, when Christ returns, and he will, I don't know if you know this, but um, I, I, the passage I had to preach in, um, in Columbia, I had never preached before, is one of the parables about the second coming of Christ. I'm like, thanks, James, you went on sabbatical and i got to preach on the second coming. But anyway... <laughs> The second, we call Advent, right? Advent is the coming of Christ the first time, right? There's a second Advent. There's a second coming of Christ that is mentioned 300, at least 318 times in the New Testament. There's only 260 chapters in the New Testament, which means one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament is about the return of Christ. And if he said he's coming, he's coming. Okay, so what do we do? What should our response be to this psalm we're looking forward to that day when psalm 110 is fulfilled completely right what do we do in the meantime we live every day in light of that day we live every day in light of that day which means this we surrender ourselves to our sovereign king if you're in this room today and you've never surrendered yourself to the lordship of jesus i want to invite you to do that today because no one's guaranteed tomorrow And the Bible's clear that we will bow to him in worship or we will bow to him in his judgment, but we will bow. We surrender to our sovereign king. We fight every day in his strength, not our own, not with weapons, but with prayer and love and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We entrust ourselves to our great high priest resting in his care and in his provision. We put our hope in our soon returning, conquering king, warrior who will execute true justice on this earth and establish the kingdom of God. And we gladly give ourselves to his purposes to spread the fame of his name across the entire world so that enemies of God might be reconciled to him so that broken people might become his beloved. That's what we do in the meantime. Amen. Amen. All right, I don't have any questions for you, so here's what I'm going to do I'm going to pray, and, um, and then I'm going to invite you to respond to our great king and priest and warrior. And we do that here at Steadfast, um, first through communion, and then through giving, and, and then through singing. So um, if you are a follower of Jesus, um, you will be welcomed to these tables where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us, his broken body, his shed blood for our sin. It's also a a, a promise, right? Because we read in Revelation that we'll be welcomed to a feast. And so this meal is a foretaste of that feast to come. It's a, a symbol of the promise that Jesus has yet to fulfill but will one day. And so we come in hope, we come in thanksgiving, we come in repentance, we come in joy to these tables. We take a piece of the bread, we dip into the juice or the wine, whatever our conscience allows. And we remember that Jesus sacrificed himself for us to make us whole. We were his enemies and he made us the children of God. So we'll start in the back rows. We'll work our way forward. Um, and then you'll, you'll come up the sides there. Um, there are black boxes in the back. So if you're new here and you want to be known, there's a connect card in your seat uh, in the pew there. You can fill that out at any point. Put it in the boxes. If you're a regular here and you want to worship God through giving um, so that the gospel can continue to go out to the ends of the earth, um, you can put your offering in those black boxes as well. Of course, most of you give online, but... Um, and then uh, uh, Matt's going to come back up and lead us in a couple songs, um, and then we'll get out of here. Sound good? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much um, for these promises, these amazing promises from Psalm 110. And um, I just I ask that um, something that we've talked about in the last 12 weeks has resonated with your people as we've looked at the life of David and how he was a broken man who was still called the man after God's own heart, your beloved mean, um, Lord, we are broken people as well, but we, we have the right to be called your beloved because of Jesus. And so I pray that the men and women in this room, the children in this room, would surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus so that they could too be called your beloved and really know what it means um, to be loved and cared for by a sovereign king an eternal priest and a conquering warrior. Lord, we need truth like this in our lives. We need this kind of glorious picture of who Jesus is to get us through the days, because the days are hard, and the hours are long, but you are coming again. So give us hope in the meantime. Lord, as we respond to you now in communion, in giving, and singing, would you be glorified and honored, and would you fill us with joy in your presence as the Psalms promise. We love you, We thank you for this time in the word and ask that you be glorified now as we respond. In the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.